Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. This is from History.com. When cigarette companies used doctors to push smoking before studies showed that cigarettes caused cancer, tobacco companies recruited the medical community for their ads. September 13th, 2018 by Becky Little from the collection of Stanford Research into the Impact of Tobacco Advertising. What cigarettes do doctors say causes less throat irritation? In the 1930s and 40s, tobacco companies would happily tell you it was theirs. Doctors hadn't yet discovered a clear link between smoking and lung cancer, and a majority of them actually smoked cigarettes. So, in cigarette ads, tobacco companies used doctors' authority to make their claims about their cigarettes seem more legitimate. To the modern-day reader, the pitching of cigarettes as healthy, even to youth and pregnant moms, and the use of doctors' endorsements may appear horrifying, yet before 1950, there wasn't good evidence showing that cigarette smoking was bad for you. People started to get worried in the 1940s because lung cancer was spiking. The lung cancer death rate was going through the roof, says Martha Gardner, a history and social sciences professor at Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. People noticed that and were worried about it and that didn't mean they knew it was cigarettes. Yes, cigarettes did cause coughing and throat irritation, but companies used this to their advantage to promote their product as better than the competition. It wasn't all cigarettes that gave you problems. It was just those other ones. The first cigarette company to use physicians in their ads was American tobacco maker Lucky Strikes. In 1930, it published an ad claiming 20,679 physicians say Luckies are less irritating to the throat. To get this number, the company's ad agency had sent physicians cartoons of Lucky Strike cigarettes and a letter asking if they thought Lucky Strikes were less irritating to sensitive and tender throats than other cigarettes, while noting a good many people had already said they were. To briefly go over definitions, I want to define science as the observation, identification, description, experimental investigation, and theoretical explanation of phenomena, mostly invoking the scientific method of observations and questions, research, hypothesis, experiment, collection of data, analysis, and conclusion, along with being falsifiable. The falsification principle proposed by Karl Popper is a way of demarcating science from non-science. It suggests that for a theory to be considered scientific, it must be able to be tested and conceivably proven false. For example, the hypothesis that all swans are white can be falsified by observing a black swan. For Popper, science could attempt to disprove a theory rather than attempt to continually support theoretical hypotheses. So, just as we have uh, scientists who can be corrupt or mistaken or lazy or just in it for the money, we could have historians who uh, study history, a chronological record of significant events such as those affecting a nation or an institution, often including an explanation of their causes. So, questioning historians doesn't mean you're a history denier. Questioning certain scientists doesn't make you a science denier. Back to the article. Unsurprisingly, many doctors responded positively 
to this bias leading question and Lucky Strikes ad use their answers to imply their cigarettes must be medically better for your throat. In 1937, the Philip Morris Company took that one step forward with the Saturday Evening Post ad claiming doctors had conducted a study showing when smokers changed to Philip Morris, every case of irritation cleared completely and definitely improved. What it didn't mention was that Philip Morris had sponsored those doctors. Philip Morris continued to advertise studies it sponsored through the 1940s, the decade that saw the introduction of penicillin. The American public is thinking about medicine in such a positive way and science in a positive way, says Gardner, who co-authored the American Journal of public health article about doctors in cigarette ads. So framing it that way seems like it'll help appeal to people. To this end, the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company created a medical relations division and advertised it in medical journals. Reynolds began paying for research and then citing it in ads like Philip Morris. In 1946, Reynolds launched an ad campaign with the slogan, More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. They'd solicited this finding by giving doctors a free carton of Camel cigarettes and then asking what brand they smoked. By the mid-1950s, when tobacco companies had to confront good evidence that their products caused lung cancer, advertising strategies started to shift. What happens is all of the cigarette companies kind of work together to try to promote the idea that we don't know if it's harmful yet, Gardner says. In 1954, these companies released a frank statement to cigarette smokers arguing that research showing a link between cancer and smoking was alarming but not conclusive. Therefore, the companies were forming a research committee to investigate the issue. So it turns out that doctors, much like Cashiers, podcasters, authors, engineers, stockbrokers, mailmen, actors, car salesmen, etc. Turns out they uh, can be fallible. They can be mistaken. They can even be bought off or corrupted. They could even rationalize their unjustified behavior. You might want to say, well, that was then and this is now and now is totally different. Here is a CNBC article from February of 2018 the third leading cause of death in U.S. most doctors don't want you to know about. A recent John Hopkins study claims more than 250,000 people in the U.S. die every year from medical errors. Other reports claim the number to be as high as 440,000. Medical errors are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. So, just meet it with uh, some... Some skepticism. I mean, can you imagine if CNN just had a 24-hour medical malpractice death count clock? Well, then you'd be as scared as that as you are of the uh, current uh, pandemic. Or maybe they'll throw in terrorism again, or maybe global cooling, or maybe global warming, or maybe overpopulation, or maybe Iran getting WMDs. They're constantly trying to scare us and usher in a solution that's totally unjustified. From National Public Radio, September of 2016, 50 years ago, sugar industry quietly paid scientists to point blame at fat. The study is titled Sugar Industry and Coronary Heart Disease Research, a Historical Analysis of Internal 
industry documents. The abstract says, early warning signals of the coronary heart disease, CHD, risk of sugar, Circos, emerged in the 1950s. We examined Sugar Research Foundation, SRF, internal documents, historical reports, and statements relevant to early debates about the dietary causes of CHD and assembled findings chronologically into a narrative case study. The SRF sponsored its first CHD research project in 1965, a literature review published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which singled out fat and cholesterol as the dietary causes of CHD and downplayed evidence that circose consumption was also a risk factor. The SRF set the review's objective, contributed articles for inclusion, and received drafts. The SRF funding and role was not disclosed. Together with other recent analyses of sugar industry documents, our findings suggest the industry sponsored a research program in the 1960s and 1970s that successfully cast doubt about the hazards of circos while promoting fat as a dietary culprit in CHD policy-making committees should consider giving less weight to food industry-funded studies and include mechanistic and animal studies as well as studies appraising the effect of added sugars on multiple CHD biomakers and disease development. Finally, let's see if we have any examples of a first-world country misattributing causes of death on an extremely large scale. Here we have the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Flu deaths reality check credibility of flu models is disputed by Kelly Crow in November of 2012. Do thousands of Canadians really die every year from the flu? The flu folks keep saying so. I've already heard it repeated several times this year, and flu season has just started. This is what the Public Health Agency of Canada said in a recent press release. Every year, between 2,000 and 8,000 Canadians die of the flu and its complications. OMG, that's like three 9-11s every year in Canada. Please do something. In a CBC interview a few weeks ago, an editor of the Canadian Medical Association Journal said 4,000 to 8,000 people die every year of Influenza. It comes directly from the desk of Canada's chief health public officer. The flu is serious, he tells us from his website. Every year, between 2,000 and 8,000 Canadians die of the flu and its complications. Do you ever wonder how they know that? The fact is, they don't. This is a scientific guess. This is not the truth. Dr. Michael Gardam, Director of Infection Prevention and Control Unit at the University Health Network in Toronto and longtime flu watcher told me the fact is no one knows how many people die after being infected with the flu virus. The death estimates are not based on body counts, lab tests, or autopsies. I think people may have the misconception that every person who dies from the flu is somehow counted somewhere, and they're not, Gardam said. The 2,000 to 8,000 numbers are based on computer models, a statistical guess that comes out the end of a mathematical formula that makes a range of assumptions about death and flu. They're tossing it into a big computer, and they're churning out estimates, Gardam said, as he 
scribbled numbers on a whiteboard to show me how the models work. One model counts all respiratory and circulatory deaths. That's deaths from heart and lung failure as flu deaths. As an upper limit, they are looking at everybody who died of a heart and lung problem, Gardam said. So you can imagine that this could include people who died of a heart attack that had nothing to do with the flu, but the feeling is that anybody who died of the flu should be captured in there, plus a lot of other people. At the lower end of that model, they count the number of deaths officially listed as influenza on the death certificate, plus all deaths from pneumonia, even though not all pneumonia is caused by the flu. Here is Edward Bernays explaining how he convinced millions of women to take up smoking. Thank you for watching Keith Knight Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. One day, Mr. George Hill, president of the American Tobacco Company, or the largest, maybe the largest tobacco company extant at that time, called me in and said, we're losing half of our market. And I said, why, Mr. Hill? He said, there's a taboo of men, there's a taboo by men that does not permit women to smoke either in public or even at home. What can we do about breaking down that taboo? I said, have I your permission to see a psychoanalyst? He said, what did it cost? I said, let me ask. So I called up Dr. Brill, who was one of the great disciples of my uncle Sigmund Freud, said, what did it cost? Dr. Brill, for me to, to have a little conference with you on a question uh, that is of importance to the people whom I'm working with. And he said $125, which at today's purchasing power would be about 20 times that, 20 times that. So I went to Dr. Brill and I asked him what cigarettes meant to women. And let me say in parenthesis that cigarettes at that time were not regarded as dangerous to your health because that had not been found out yet. In fact, they were regarded as symbols of manhood. Little boys smoked them to prove that they were older than they were. And they were regarded as symbols of importance in the society giving pleasure and so on. So uh, I went to Dr. Brill and asked him what cigarettes meant to women and he answered very quickly, cigarettes are torches of freedom to women. They want to smoke to dramatize man's taboo against women by not permitting them to smoke and that's why they want to smoke and then he added as an afterthought and they titillate the erogenous zones of the lips here I had my hundred and twenty five dollars worth of knowledge 
How, what could I do with that information? I decided that there were two days of freedom in the United States. One was July 4th, political freedom, but that was no good because people were in the country using firecrackers to celebrate the day. They were permitted at that time. This was some 50 years ago. The other day was Freedom of the Spirit, Easter Sunday, and it occurred to me that any young debutante who was aware of the times and of herself as a woman being discriminated against would be delighted to walk in the Easter parade with her bow to dramatize the idea that cigarettes were indeed torches of freedom to and to validate uh, and to invalidate the taboo against women smoking. So I called up a debutant friend of mine, asked her to get another friend and two young men whom they liked, and they I also instructed them on how to give information about what they did to the newsreels, weekly newsreels, to the newspapers, to the three important press associations, the AP, the United Press, and International News Service, and to walk from 34th Street to 57th and back and back and forth, lighting torches of freedom to protest man's inhumanity to women by a taboo against smoking. Next morning, there wasn't a newspaper in the United States. Even the New York Times had a front-page story, Debutantes Light Torches of Freedom to Protest Man's Inhumanity uh, to Women by a Taboo Against Smoking, Lighting Cigarettes, in their walk. The interesting thing to me was that within three days, the newspapers, without any intercession on my part, published accounts that women were smoking in Union Square in San Francisco, in Union Square in Denver, and on the Boston Commons. And to my surprise, within six weeks on their own without any intercession on my part the league of theaters which had a ban on women smoking in the smoking rooms under the orchestras of every good theater in new york lifted the ban and women were allowed to smoke that obviously set a trend and uh, the Surgeon General's uh, statement that cigarettes were dangerous to your health did not come out until about 30 years later.